today we're going to be in Acts 17. I'm going to talk a lot about um, a word that, that most of you have heard, probably everyone's heard. Uh, worldview is, is the word that I'm going to use a whole lot today. And I'm leaning in on that word uh, just because of what we understand and what we know about what you, what we believe. Worldview, though, isn't, I mean, it's, a, it's an academic concept, but it's a, very, it's a very real one. We all have a worldview. Um, worldview has been defined in a whole lot of ways. The best definition I've heard is, is it, the, it is the filter by which we make decisions. That's what worldview is. You make thousands of decisions a day. And so the reason that you get um, a veggie burger as opposed to a cheeseburger or a cheeseburger as opposed to a veggie burger or you wear a particular type of clothing, it's all a result of your worldview. It's the filter by which we make decisions. And I'm going to go back to that a whole lot. I just I put that out there because we're going to talk a lot about worldview and particularly changing worldview. All of you in this room, your worldview or most of you in this room, your worldview was in concrete by the time you were 13 years old by the time you were 13. So worldview is established in a person by the time they're 13. And that's gotten a little bit earlier in life than it used to be, primarily because of the vast number of decisions people have to make every single day. 13 years old. So you are in a place where if you came to know Jesus after the age of 13, you most likely had to, have, you most likely had to change your worldview. Or you never did, and there's still some lagging stuff that creeps up in, in the way you make decisions. I want to talk all about worldview, and I want to encourage you ultimately uh, to consider worldview, not just um, assume that because you're a Christian or because you love the Bible or because you love God that you have a Christian worldview. Can't let you off that easy. In fact, it's likely that you don't. It's likely that you don't. It's likely that you, um, you don't have a biblical worldview, and we're going to talk about that, and it's okay because Christ is, is good and gracious to us and, uh, and always leads us in, in, in righteousness, paths of righteousness. So we're going we're gonna to look at two uh, different stories. One is in uh, Thessalonica, uh, Thessalonica, uh, Thessalonica to the Thessalonian people, and the second is in Berea. Acts 17 is my favorite chapter in the book of Acts. Let me show you the map just to give you some context for where we're going to read to talk about worldview. Uh, Acts, Paul's second missionary journey started on the east side or the right side of the map, and he moved up northwest. And so we find ourselves on the top left corner of this map today. This whole missionary journey was written between the years of 50 and 52 AD, so it's a three-year journey. First and second Thessalonians was written during this missionary journey. So although Paul's a brief stay, although it's a very brief stay in Thessalonica, he writes first and second Thessalonians to get information back to the church there because he's got to go, and we'll see why he's got to go in the text before us. And so that's where we are in the context. Don't forget they are here because of the Macedonian call. Paul did not plan on going here, but in Acts chapter 16, he has a dream, and the man says, come and help us in this western region in Macedonia, and so that's where we land. So these, this is the story. It's a fascinating chapter. I can't wait to get all of it over the next couple weeks, uh, but let's just start verse 1, go through verse 15. Uh, it says, so now they had passed through uh, Amphip Amphipolis and uh, Apollonia. They came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews, and Paul went in, and as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. The, the ESV 
translates this kind of weird, sounds odd in the English, just trying to be real faithful to the original language, but basically quite a few leading women um, also believed. But the Jews were jealous and taking some wicked men of the rabble, I love that phrase. I'm going to start, like when I see suspicious characters in the streets, I'm going to call them wicked men of the rabble. That's just the way I'm like, you look like a wicked man of the rabble. And they formed a mob, but these really were, these were roughnecks, and essentially they, they incited them and got them to riot in the whole city. About 200,000 people lived in the city at this point, so if you can imagine just starting a riot from the city center and moving that outwards in a city of a couple hundred thousand, it got nasty real quick. So that set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. Man, that is my theme for my life. Maybe it's because I'm a little rebellious. But like, man, if I could have something on my gravestone, it'd be like, man, this dude turned the world upside down. Flip the tables. Man, I love that site. Jason, by the way, probably just a pretty wealthy guy who had a house, and he offered it to them. And so that's why they're going after Jason. And so the charge is this, that these men have turned the world upside down, and they've come here also, and Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another King Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things, and when they had taken money and security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, and when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them, therefore, believed with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible. They departed. So it's a little similar. Um, Paul's getting chased out of town again. Uh, this is the story of the church, kind of like in Acts 14 that ultimately led to the Jerusalem council. Like it wasn't enough to kick them out of the city. They're going to chase them to another city and prevent the gospel from being preached there. Same kind of theme we saw in Acts chapter 14. Uh, this time they kind of up the ante though a little bit. They, they recognize to bring charges against these men. You, you realize persecution has now transitioned from being pure, uh, just religious persecution. Now they're starting to bring governing authorities into it, and the government is starting to have their say and start to persecute them. And for them to have a, a, a viable charge against Jason and Paul and Silas and all those other guys, they have to show that these guys are destroying stuff. And so literally they go to the market and they find the men of the rabble, the roughnecks, and they say, listen, just start breaking stuff, basically. You just go break stuff, right? We know how riots work. It's very similar to that, and they do, and then the charge can be these guys are creating havoc in the city. And so Paul has to escape. He's going to write his letters to the Thessalonians later, and you ought to read that if you want some context for the church that would emerge in Thessalonica. Don't forget it wasn't all a lost cause, right? Like the church is started there as well. Um, it may just not have been because of the Jewish people who heard the message. 
So a lot's happening, and I, I don't want to just examine the text for historical significance, although it is there. I, I, want, to, I want to apply this to, to our context and our setting, where we are in 2022, and delve into a real understanding of what we're dealing with as Christians in our culture, and that, that relates back to worldview. But ultimately, my hope as I, as I write every sermon, I think about the main thing that, that I want, that I pray for, that I, that, I, that I hope to pass on below the surface or maybe out front. And it is really just a church's your desire, like my desire, our desire to know God in a world that doesn't. To desire to know God <clears throat> in a world that doesn't. And, and by that, I mean like a world that doesn't even desire to know. Like, like what a countercultural witness. What a turning upside down of people who desire to know God in a world that doesn't. J.I. Packer says, once you become aware that the main business that you are here for is to know God, most of life's problems fall into place at, of their own accord. And so to do that, for us to desire to know God, for us to think well about how God thinks and literally to see and, and not only love the same things Jesus loves, but do what he does after his own heart and the power of the Spirit, we've, we've got to reframe how we think about the world. All of us do. We've kind of got to put whatever worldview we bring into this space in our lives, we've kind of with open hands just kind of have to lay it on the altar for a minute to see if it's something we need to pick back up or something we need to let go of. I, I say a critical consideration of worldview, just to, to be critical of the things we think and why we think them. Just because we think it and just because it seems to reconcile with the Christian faith doesn't mean that it fits or comes flows from the Christian faith. I mean, let's be honest. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands, but how many of you were raised in Southern fried Christianity, right? A lot of you believe stuff about God that isn't from God, okay? And I'm not just throwing out like oddball statements here. I'm not just saying random things. Um, one of my favorite nerds in the world is George Barna. George Barna does research. He studies people. He wants to know why you think, what you think, why you think, how you think, when you think, all these things. And he's been doing it for like a lot of years, right? He, so he is, he is over a, a cultural research center um, at Arizona Christian University. And they, they did a two-year worldview study across the United States of America just trying to understand worldview. And like 64-ish percent of Americans self-identify as Christians still. I'm like, well, I'm surprised it's that high. But basically, it just means I self-identify as a Christian. 6% by the survey actually demonstrated possessing a Christian worldview. 6% of people. In ministry, they found, of all denominations, about just over 40%, you're going to hear this right, over 40%, just over 40% of pastors, senior pastors, hold a biblical worldview. Just over 40% of senior pastors hold a biblical worldview. That means that majority of senior pastors across denominations in America do not hold a biblical worldview. For youth leaders... And this is not our case. Dustin, Tosh, or Celia, do you hear me? This is not our case here. For youth and children's leaders, still this is not going to surprise you, just over 10% hold a Christian worldview. So I'm not just up here like throwing shade. I'm saying like statistically you don't have a Christian worldview. 
And we're going to talk about what that is and what is not, but, but ultimately it is the filter by which we make decisions in a day. And it's really hard to change your worldview. Again, 13 years old, you've been dealing with it since you were 13, right? You understood what you were going to believe about the world at 13 and not much has changed. You might recognize that many folks come to faith in Christ because they don't have an answer for eternity. So they come to Christ, then they have heaven settled, I'm good in heaven, but their worldview doesn't change. So since 13, you know, the, the worst thing I ever heard, um, J.I. Packer, will you go back to his picture for me? J.I. Packer, uh, this is just for my folks who are uh, not youthful anymore, like J.I. Packer, he's, he's like the oldest guy, he's older than anybody in this room, I promise. He was, is, was, did Packer pass? Just re- was, just recently, wasn't it? Yes. This year, wasn't it? Last year? Jake Waltman knows. <laughs> God rest his soul, right? <laughs> was. <laughs> that was good, bro. You know, J.I. Packer was talking about hard-headedness, and, and honestly, what he called it, just it was about three years ago then, he was still alive then, Jake, three years ago. Um, it's about the sin of old age, the sin of hard-headedness, the sin of being stuck in our ways. Um, and he called it out on the carpet in a way that like, no one else could speak to <laughs> other than J.I. Packer. A, because he was really, really old, and he's really, really wise. But he talked about the sin of hard-headedness, of believing that we've got it all figured out. Um, so I'm going to talk about changing that a little bit. And let me just show you some hard-headedness. Go back to Thessalonica. What made these guys so mad? So from, from the earliest days of their life, they had been raised in a worldview. They'd been raised in a religious worldview that told them the Messiah would be coming, right? So it ought not to, to make them so upset that the Messiah has come. Well, here's the challenge with that. Many of the Jewish people who lived in Thessalonica, did not live in Thessalonica because they wanted to be there. Some 16 years earlier, there was a huge expulsion of the Jewish people from Rome. Thessalonica was a similar city. So here are Jewish people under Roman rule, hating that Roman rule at the very same time, even though they played nicely with it most of the time, living in a city they didn't want to because they were forced out of a city they originally were from because of Roman rule, all outside of the city they know is their ultimate home in Jerusalem. And so what they believed was that the Messiah would come to release the Jews from Roman oppression. That the Messiah would establish a new nationalistic state. And obviously to accomplish a nationalistic state and to release them from Roman oppression, the Messiah would then, by implication, rise up as a king and a military leader. This is the Messiah they wanted. However, the Messiah they got did not overthrow Rome, but rather suffered on the cross of Rome. The Messiah they got, as delivered by Paul, was a Messiah who did not do any delivering, but rather just did the dying I mean, think about what Paul is arguing here. The text specifically says to them, explained and proving that it was necessary that the Christ must suffer. He's probably teaching from Isaiah 53. So this Messiah King that you were expecting is actually the Messiah who was 
Isaiah 53.3, despised and rejected. Isaiah 53.4, smitten by God and afflicted. Isaiah 53.5, pierced for our transgressions. Isaiah 53.10, it was the will of God to crush him. This is the Messiah Paul preaches. So how will they be freed from Roman rule with a Messiah who willingly suffers and dies on a Roman cross? That was their breaking point. We can't take this because everything we believed to be true, you're saying, is untrue. You know, this is a challenge with the gospel getting to Muslim peoples, by the way. You've heard many times the Muslim faith teaches that Jesus is the great prophet, right? They have great respect for Jesus. And what they believe about Christianity is, is that we take their great prophet, put him on a cross, spit on him, and watch him bleed out, which is the most shameful way to die. And in shame honor cultures, that is offensive. So just don't forget the Christian gospel is still offensive, but for various reasons. Similarly to Islam today as it was to Judaism in this chapter. I mean, that's shameful, you're saying, to Paul would be saying, is that, that he literally would be beaten, bleed out, and die on a cross? That's not our Messiah. Not my Messiah, right? That's the idea. Unwilling to critically consider their own worldview, but rather holding fast to their opinions and the thoughts they had held, considering them to be right simply because they've had them since childbirth? That is hard-headedness. That is the reason that we have a, a world not upside down by the gospel, but a world confused in its own worldview. You know, you know, we're saying if only 6% of people have a worldview that has truly been shaped and is open to the leading of God, what do most people in America believe? It's called syncretism. Syncretism is where you take a little of this and a little of that, and together you get a worldview. It is country music in 2022, and I like country music in 2022, but I'm just saying it teaches, it teaches it te if you want to know what syncretism in American worldview is, listen to country music. There's a guy named Hardy. I like his music. But he has this song called Give Heaven Some Hell. Right? And here's what's fascinating about it. He says in the line, it's about his buddy who died, and he says these words, but he walked the aisle so he'll be just fine. I hope when you get there, you'll give heaven some hell. That's American religious worldview. It's just a little of this and a little of that. So the majority of people of respondents in that same survey hold what is called syncretism, a jumbled up mess. Nearly nine out of 10 Americans possess a syncretistic worldview. Here's the fancy language of what that means. It's a cut and paste approach to making sense of life. And that's what Barna says. Continues by saying, rather than developing an internally consistent and philosophically coherent perspective, Americans embrace points of view or actions that feel comfortable or most convenient. Those beliefs and behaviors are often inconsistent or even contradictory, but few Americans seem troubled by that. Right? Most of you, most of us, most of America develops their worldview not from the pages of Scripture, but with a little bit of Scripture and a whole lot of life. And that's how we make our decisions. We want to be critical of this worldview. We don't want to look at this page and say, oh, those foolish Jewish people, they, were, they couldn't see, they couldn't see. How could they have seen when they believed the Messiah to be like this and they were unwilling to lay their worldview at the altar to see what God might say? 
I mean, we want to be transformed, right? We want this. Don't you want this? I mean, if maybe you're sitting here this morning saying, I think I think this way. I think, I, I think the Bible, I mean, I believe the Bible. I talk about the Bible a lot. Listen, I, I, what do we want? We want to be transformed. Romans 12, 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed, right, by the renewal of your mind. So just for a moment, just commit to hearing from God. A commitment to hearing from God is exactly what the Bereans demonstrate for us. The Bereans aren't any different. They're just more noble, and that has nothing to do with birth set or birthplace. That just has to do with their heart posture. They were eager. They wanted to hear from God. They truly desired to know God in a world that doesn't. They believe the same thing. They've been taught the many of the same things as the, Thessal- the Thessalonians. But there's some differences. They were actually eager to hear the word, prepared to hear the word. What does it say about them? They studied the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. And ultimately, we see the action that flows from it. They responded to the message and they aligned their life in accordance with the word. Oh man, if the, the Bereans is a whole nother point. I mean, I just think about this, like think about that statement. I didn't get anything out of the sermon or church today. I mean, do, do we eagerly prepare in this way? Like when we think about Sunday gatherings, just an example, do, does that preparation, like what, is, like what does our Saturday night do to contribute or take away from our Sunday morning in terms of preparation? Are we people of the word through the week or are we just coming in here to get a quick fix and go home? Like the way the Bereans deal with this, they literally, I just see this heart posture of them like, like on their knees before saying, Lord, show me your truth. I am eager to know your will. I am eager to know your truth. And to, to lay their opinions at the altar, right? That's the most beautiful part about this. The way in which they hold the word high and their opinions low because all opinions must be tried by the word of God. You know, I really don't care what you think. I don't care what I think. I'm happy that all of us have opinions, but I want to know what God's desire and God's design is for creation. I'm really not interested in what I think or you think about politics or human sexuality or critical race theory or any other cultural topic. I have an opinion, and you do too. And chances are, though, God has a different opinion, and that's the one I want. That's the one I want to orient and submit my life before. That's the only one that I ultimately need to care about. Obedience is not getting God to say what you want him to say. Obedience is you listening and hearing what God says and submitting your life before him even if you don't fully understand it. That's trust. Like, I don't know how or why. I can promise you right now, in the pervasive culture we live in, there are so many easier ways to live before the world than the way that the Lord has instructed us. There are so many easier ways. There are so many easier choices. Like, right now, we could just capitulate to culture and say, you know what, we just want to love everybody in that cultural love sense and just give in to everything else. But that's just simply not what we see in the Word of God. It's not. I, I hear people all the time like, I just, I, I, just, I just would rather be in a more loving church. What do you mean? A church that forsakes truth and ignores truth for the sake of popularity? I promise you, just with regard to this one issue of human sexuality, I have people I love and are my friends, right, who are going to fundamentally disagree with me as I disagree with them. They don't think I hate them. They know I fundamentally disagree with them. 
And as much as easy, you know how easy it would be for me just to say love is love? It would be so easy for me to say that. But it's just not true. And I can't help that, and I don't fully understand that. I have an idea, but I don't fully understand that. Al Mohler says this. He says, we see so many churches today that have relinquished the gospel and doctrinal fidelity. Instead, they serve the cultural whims and, and alter the core tenets of the faith in order to modernize it in keeping with the times. A plethora of churches today have signed up for the cultural and moral revolution that has swept through Western societies in the past 60 years or so, committing high treason against the king of the cosmos. To lay your opinions at the feet of the word and let the word try them is one of life's most difficult journeys. And this is not a new problem. Like, uh, you know, uh, um, the, whole, the whole generational thing going on, this is every generation. You have not, I've heard older generations in this church, like I'll say Bible and they'll say, yeah, but. I've heard younger people do the same thing. This is not the young people doing it. It's not the millennials. It's not the zeers. It's not the boomers. It's the humaners. <laughs> All y'all are looking for a reason to get away from the conviction of the word of the Lord. But worldview, and hear this, as the Bereans studied the scriptures and aligned their life in accordance with that, look at that, you have, you have, everybody's acting in accordance with their worldviews in this passage. The Thessalonians are chasing Paul out of town and the Bereans are protecting him. And if you're wondering if we're going to get to the point, how do I know what my worldview is? I can tell you if worldview is the filter by which we make decisions, this is where you need to listen. Because not only is there a willingness to lay your worldview and your preconceived notions on the table and try your opinions by the word of the Lord, commit to hearing him above all other things, there is and will be a conviction to act upon your beliefs. Worldview is not just believing something. I will say it again. Worldview is not just believing something. For many years, that guy George Barna did research on worldview, and he made a massive mistake, and he noted this mistake over the last few years and changed the survey altogether. What he realized was for the first many years of his career, he was only asking people about beliefs. But what he recognized in this survey, asking 54 questions, he recognized there's something critical to understand if people really believe what it is they tell me they believe. And those 54 questions were both belief and behavior questions. Because ultimately, your behavior is the litmus test for what you really believe. And so if you are saying, I believe a Christian worldview, but your behaviors are not in accordance or aligned with what we know to be true, your worldview is something other than a biblical worldview. Because worldview is the belief that drives your behavior. Candy shared a quote that she had heard a number of years ago that is so fitting for this moment. It was said the difference between conviction and convenience is conviction is that stuff you do when no one else is watching. And I believe that we have a lot of people who know a lot about God, but may not know the God they're talking about. Because if, if your Bible doesn't manifest itself in your life, in your behavior, then you know nothing more than facts about a book. 
and your worldview, the things you actually do, the decisions you make, the filter that you're using to make those decisions is coming from something or someone else other than the Bible. So this is how we get to the disparity between over 60% of Americans self-identifying as Christians and 6% actually possessing a biblical worldview. It is in the behavior questions that the liar, liar, pants on fire comes out in the story. That's how he did this. Knowing God isn't just knowing things about God. Knowing God's Word isn't just knowing about God's Word. It is actually living and arranging your life in accordance with His words because you do 10 times out of 10 what you believe. If we truly make thousands of decisions a day, the truth is that very few of us make those decisions from a biblical worldview. The majority is coming from some other system, some other influence, some other social source, but not Scripture. If I was a crier, I'd cry again right now because I cried when I prepped this note. The hard lesson, listen to this, is that if our works and our actions don't align with the faith that we confess, it is entirely possible that we do not possess a saving faith. If our works and our actions do not align with the faith that we confess, it is entirely possible that we do not possess a saving faith. Now, I am not talking about momentary failures. I am talking about a life that is consistently different than the faith we confess. And I can say that not because it's my opinion, because I think James says the same thing. He says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled. Lots of words, right? If lots of you pray for the lost but never share the gospel with the lost without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself. I added the gospel sharing part. So also faith by itself if it does not have works is dead. Faith by itself, if it does not have works is dead. Do we know a lot about God? Sure. Just Google it. And just pick up any number of commentaries and I can learn 75 different ways to highlight my Bible. And I can, I can go to like, I don't know, in a given week, I think any one of us could go to 400 different Bible studies. We know a lot about God, more about God than we've ever known. And yet lostness continues to increase. Churches decline discipleship having to like climb out of the ditches to see it reemerge. It's an obedience-less Christianity that has been passed down. And all I'm saying is that I believe we've made the mistake 
maybe the false assumption. I think the enemy, I know what the enemy would want in this situation. The enemy wants to keep us content and happy and comfortable, believing that we have a biblical worldview and that our decisions every single day are based in accordance with our biblical worldview. That's what the enemy wants, because as long as we believe that junk, we're going to keep believing that junk. And I just think the call here is, is to go a little deeper and to really ask, like, what drives you? It may not be a, a horrible, like, I don't believe you're a Marxist if you aren't biblical. <laughs> it, it may not be this, 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 this anti-God system that you believe, but at the same time, I mean, are you driven by what God teaches? Like, is that the primary factor in your life? That's all I'm asking. That, that's what I'm getting at. Like to, to be the Bereans, to lay down. That's faithful Christianity that disrupts a society looks markedly different than the rest of the society around it. That's what I'm getting at. So, so, so just simply, as my, as my final call here as we conclude this, this stuff this morning, is, is to think about your desire to know God in a world that doesn't and the way that you think about the world and process the world. And have you just kind of had the same thought for a long time, like let's say you were 13, or have you really laid it down before God and say, God, what are you called? me to in yourself like what are you calling me to see differently and think differently about the world around me Paul's second missionary journey is, is, is just really beginning to get really, really fascinating. And he's journeying in a world like our own. Like these, I think these people weren't just sitting there waiting for something. They weren't dumb people long ago just waiting for somebody to explain things to them. They were just like us. They had lots of opinions and they had lots of ideas. But here comes this gospel message. And you know what? The gospel has always disrupted a society. The gospel has always turned the world upside down because we carry a message and we act upon that message that pierces hearts and it offends corrupt minds. When we faithfully, faithfully proclaim and live out the gospel, what we do is seek to loosen Satan's grip on this world. So gospel preaching has and will always turn the world upside down. And I think that's the measure. That's the metric. Do we do it where we go? Do we turn the world upside down? Is the world turning upside down in the name of Christ? And when all that gets crazy and chaotic and it's going to get that way, it's going to get more difficult and I can't imagine, I don't want to imagine, but is it not still far better to desire to know this God even in a world that doesn't? And that's where I find peace. That's where I find joy. And that's what I want, even when the world turns upside down, is to be simply like these Bereans. And so I want to pray for you because if you're in a place this morning and you're hearing some thoughts here, I, I specifically want to pray for those who are recognizing like in this moment, like nothing in my life is actually a reflection of, of my conviction in the Lord. Like the way I live my life is, is not, like I'm, I think I am scattered up here and I, I, want, to be, I want to be together in this. I, I, want to, I want to do what the Lord, um, I want to love what he loves and I want to do what he does and I want that to be the power of the Holy Spirit. I want my life to be consistent. Like this is not an insurmountable problem if you're not in that place. It's the problem actually of every human heart and so the answer is to trust in Jesus, to trust in his Lord and surrender your life to him and say, listen, I, 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 I need you as a Lord, as my Lord, as the Lord. I need, I need someone to follow because I can't do this on my own. And so God, as I pray right now, I am praying that we as your people would look markedly different, so much so that the accusations against us might be that we're turning the world upside down. Um, Lord, this is not extreme in any way. This is simply the way you've ordered it, that your people would follow you. I acknowledge right now as I look upon a church, a room full of people, that we come in with a whole lot of ideas about how the world works. And there is one true, there's one true calling, and that is 
That is the way in which you have called us, the way you have designed us. I'd pray that we could submit our opinions and lay them at the altar, willing to hear from you in all things. Convince us that, that, that Jesus is the truer and better way. Convince us that in the midst of the world around us, that the, the way that you have designed and the way that you have called is far better. Lord, may every decision of our day run across and through and an, in the midst of be heard in the midst of the Holy Spirit. May, may we just submit ourselves to you in our lives. Show us the way, Father. Show us the way. In Jesus' name. Amen.